We're going to be in Job this morning. Job, chapter 1. And let's start reading in verse number 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the day of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servant with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this did Job not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, 
Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you'll guide us now as we look at this passage of Scripture and think about this topic. I pray, Lord, today for wisdom and guidance. I pray for the filling of the Spirit. I pray, Lord, for protection as we delve into this area. I pray, Father, that you would just speak to us. Lord, we need to understand We need to understand the danger here, but Father, more than anything else, we need to rejoice in the victory. And so I pray you guide us as we study this topic. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord willing, this today will be our final message on and our digging deeper into our Statement of Faith series. Um, I would encourage you to go to the church website and check me on that. I would encourage you to make sure if there's anything there in that Statement of Faith that we have not touched on, Say so to me. I, I think, we, because we jumped around so uh, out of order in that study, it's possible that there may be something in that statement of faith that you have a question about that I didn't deal with. If that's the case, uh, we'll try and deal with that. But I believe today we'll be at the end unless anybody raises such an objection. And I think that we have covered every sentence in the statement of faith, with the exception of these three. We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. We believe that the only scriptural marriage is the joining of one man and one woman. And we believe that Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits against other Christians or the church to resolve personal disputes. And I want to deal with all three of those this morning. Now, two of those we can handle very, very quickly. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm not going to make a lot of comment. I'm just going to read to you the passage of Scripture that, uh, upon which we base that statement that Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits against other Christians. You know, the fact is, in our litigious society today, and with the fact that uh, society is becoming more and more uh, antagonistic toward the church. Sometimes we have to include things in a document like a statement of faith just as a protection, just as a guard against that sort of thing. And so that's basically the reason we have it there. But there is a scriptural precedent. There is a scriptural explanation for why we believe Christians do not sue Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just read it, and I think it will be clear to you. First Corinthians 6.1 Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. I I don't think we need to make a lot of comment there. It says we don't do that. It says that we do not go to law 
against brethren. And I, and I especially like verse number 7. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? So often the church <laughs> makes a spectacle of itself before the world by going before the lost world and asking them to judge in matters that we ought to be judges of. And I, I just like that. Wouldn't it be better for us to accept wrong than to allow the name of Jesus Christ to be besmirched or dragged through the mud? And so that's one thing. We believe Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits. And then we have another statement in there that has to do with marriage, and that's to ensure clarity. Isn't it ridiculous that in our society today we have to have such a statement? But unfortunately, we do. We have to protect the church against those who would try to force the church uh, to uh, endorse marriage that is not marriage, as we believe the Bible teaches. And uh, so therefore, we have that statement in there. We believe God has commanded no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And we believe that the only scriptural marriage is the joining of one man and one woman. There's all kinds of verses of scripture that we have backing that up. You can go look that up on your own. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 19, Genesis 26, uh, all kinds. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, all of those are on the statement of faith. You can look at them. I'll just read one to you. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that, do we? I think we know what the Bible teaches. And so that's why that particular sentence is in our statement of faith. And there's many things we could say about that. But there is one remaining topic that I do want us to talk about, which I think is important, which I think is doctrinal, which I think is, is vital that we understand. And that is the, 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 the fact of the devil. We believe in the reality and the personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And so let's talk a little bit about the devil today. He is real, you know. He's not just a guy with, you know, red horns and a pitchfork. The devil is a real person mentioned in the Bible. As I reviewed the material in the Bible on, on the devil, I actually was quite shocked at how much there is, at, at how much uh, information we have in the Bible. Did you know, for example, that there are 22 names used of the devil? Satan, obviously, is the most often used one. It means adversary, and it's used 52 times in the Bible. He's also referred to as the devil, which means slanderer. That's used 35 times. But he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. He's the king of death. He's the prince of this world. He's the ruler of darkness. He's Leviathan, the one who dwells in the sea of humanity. He's Lucifer, the light bearer, the shining one. He's the dragon, the deceiver, Apollyon, a word which means destroyer. He's Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Belial, a word meaning vileness and ruthlessness. He's the wicked one, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, an angel of light, a liar, a murderer, the enemy, and a roaring lion. Twenty-two names or descriptions given of Satan in the Bible. And did you know that the existence of Satan is taught in seven of our Old Testament books and is taught by every single one of the New Testament writers? And so I think we're justified in having this sentence in our statement of faith. We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Now, there's way too much for us to cover uh, on the whole doctrine of Satan, uh, way too much for us to cover in one sermon. So we're just going to pick and choose, as we've done a lot of in this little series that we've been teaching. 
And just, just, just several statements that I'd like to make, uh, which hopefully will summarize what the Bible teaches about Satan. And the first one would be this. Satan is the enemy of God and of man. Satan is the enemy of God and of man. Now certainly, as we read this passage of scripture about Job, and, and as we saw a little bit of the interplay between uh, the, the God and Satan in this, and Job and Satan in this, is there any question that in this example Satan is acting as an enemy of God and an enemy of man. Now, there's no question as we look at this that his enmity is clear. But there are other verses that would show us the same thing. Other verses which would show that he is either the enemy of God or of man. First Chronicles chapter 21, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. First Thessalonians chapter 2, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. He's the enemy of God, and he's the enemy of man. MacArthur said the Christian life is a war against Satan and against the forces of evil. And he would say that because Satan is the enemy of God and the enemy of man. Now that enmity manifests itself in several different ways. One way is he accuses us. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He certainly accused Job before God, did he not? Does he serve you for nothing? Take away all that he has. His, his, reality, his faith is not real. And since we're talking about Tim Tebow so much this morning, how many times have we heard on the news? How many times have we heard uh, unbelievers question the validity of his faith or the reality of his faith? He accuses us before God. Revelation chapter 12, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. He accuses us. He accuses us. He not only accuses us before God, though he also accuses God before us. That's the enmity toward God. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3 when we first were introduced to Satan, we read this. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, his God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And then he proceeds to go on and continue to accuse God and what God has said to the woman until he tricks her into sinning and doing what she's been told not to do. He accuses us before God. He accuses God and God's word before us. He puts believers to the test, trying, tempting, bringing suffering to try and get them to fail. Obviously, Job may be the clearest example of that in our Bible. I don't know. I would say he must be one of the clearest. But there are others. Luke chapter 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. What a sentence. Satan wants you, Peter. He wants to put you through the ringer. He wants to work you over. He wants to sift you as wheat. First Peter or First Timothy chapter three. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He wants to trip us up, test us, try us, get us to fall. Revelation chapter two. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He puts believers to the test. He tries. He tempts. He brings suffering. He tries to get them to fail. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 6, we have the Lord's Prayer. I prefer to call it the Disciples' Prayer because it was Jesus giving an example prayer to the disciples. But you know, there's a line in there that says, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is some evidence, and you may be holding a particular translation that actually has this this, uh, this translation, but there is some evidence that what Jesus was praying there is not just deliver us from evil, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Because he puts believers to the test. He tries them, tests them, tempts them. He also actively opposes the gospel and fights against it. Anytime anybody wants to try and stand up, Tim Tebow is a perfect example. Anytime you're going to see Satan rising up and trying to fight that down. Matthew chapter 13, we have some of the most wonderful parables that Jesus ever shared. Matthew chapter 13 has the, uh, the parable of the sower and the soils. Remember that particular parable? A sower went forth to sow. And this, the, the, what he was sowing was the word of God, Jesus explained. And that fell on different types of soil. And, and most people, for a variety of reasons, did not receive the message and did not get saved. But the interesting thing is that when he was explaining to the disciples why some did not accept the message, it's because the evil one came and plucked it away. Satan fights and opposes against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 13 also has the parable of the tares among the wheat. And of course, the wheat, Jesus said, was believers. The wheat was those who received the message. But there was also these tares, these weeds that were growing up amongst the wheat. And he said, that's false believers. That's, 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 that's not true believers. And they said, how'd they get there? And he said, an enemy has done this. The devil has done this. And so he opposes actively the gospel. And you know, that's something for us to think about as we consider what our goals are for this new year and for the next few years. As we think about the fact that we're going we're gonna to really try to focus and concentrate on the Great Commission and really try to focus on reaching our community and our world for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on the gospel. That's putting a big target on us because Satan will oppose that. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about here, about, about the enmity. I would encourage you, spend some time studying your Bible, and you'll see these are, not, these are not the only ways in which he shows himself the enemy of God and men. Just a few. Satan is the enemy of God and of men. But, but, he is a defeated enemy. And that's point number two. He is a defeated enemy. A few years back, we had a game night here. One of the earliest of our game nights. And we're going to have another game night coming up. I think there's an announcement in our, in our bulletin about that. And I encourage you to join us for that. It's always a fun time. But in this particular game night, there was a lady who, was, who had been visiting with the church a little bit. And uh, she, she attended the game night. And she and I and a few others were sitting around a table playing some board game. I do not remember the game. I don't remember anything about it. I just remember I stunk at it and I kept, I kept losing. And every time I would lose, she would go... Loser! She is not with us anymore. <laughs> but you know what? Satan is a loser. Satan is a defeated enemy. Satan is not God. And there are times I think that we get confused about that. He is not God. He does not possess the attributes of God. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He does not know everything as God does. Uh, he is a created being who will be judged for his sin just as all other sinners are. That's what God pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when he said in that first messianic promise there, he said that the seed of the woman would bruise 
the serpent's head. You're a defeated enemy. You will be judged. And that judgment was accomplished on the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. At the end of, uh, uh, of the tribulation, we're going to see Satan cast into a pit. And at the end of the millennium, we're going to see him taken and thrown into the lake of fire where he is going to stay forever and ever and ever. Isn't that what it says? The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah! He is a defeated enemy. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Jesus defeated him. He's already lost. He's a loser. So he is the enemy of God and men, but he's a defeated enemy. Now there's many things that we could talk about about that, but I'm going to stop right there. I'm just going to ask this question. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? What application do we make? How do we live knowing that these things are true? Well, let me just say this. I think what this means is that while we should definitely respect Satan, we need not fear him. We need not fear him. If there is a lesson from Job, and there are many lessons from Job, but if there's one that I would suggest this morning, it's that nothing happened here. This was horrible. Did you pay attention when I was reading? It was horrible. I'm always astonished by the, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, his whole life taken away from him right there. But in the midst of all of that, none of it, none of it, even those things that were instigated by Satan took place without God's oversight and permission. Even in the midst of the most satanic oppression, Job was under the watchful eye of God, who still loved him. And still was taking care of him. And it made it all right in the end. You've got to read the end of the book to see that. But he did. He made it all right in the end. So I think we ought to respect Satan, but not fear him. Now we are told that we need to be on guard against his influences. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We're told to be on guard. And we are told to arm ourselves against him. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so we need to learn about that armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. We need to take it upon ourselves. We need to arm ourselves. And we are told to be aware of his devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's why it's good for us to study him. Don't fear him, but understand him. Be aware of him. And we are told to resist him. James chapter 4 and verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All those verses and others tell me that we should certainly not take him lightly. We should respect him. We should do everything we can to guard against him, to resist him. When we were in New Jersey, there was a fellow in the church there, he's a wonderful old saint, he's with the Lord now. He was telling me one day about all these troubles and trials that had come upon his life. And I said, well, what, what do you think was the cause of all these troubles and trials? And he said, I know exactly what the trouble, the cause of these troubles was. He says, one day I walked out into my yard, and these are his words, he said, I challenged the devil. I never understood what that meant, but it doesn't sound very good to me. It doesn't sound like something we ought to do. 
I challenged the devil. And according to him, then, of course, nothing but trials and troubles came upon his life as a result. So I don't think that's right. I think we need to be careful. I think we need to respect him. But my God is bigger than Satan. And as long as my God stands between me and him, I need not fear. I need not fear. He told Satan, or he told Peter that day, he said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Glory. Think about that. And Jesus not only prayed for us, he still prays for us. John chapter 17, he said, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. He prays for us. And he died for us in order to give us victory over this very thing. Though Satan should buffet, the songwriter said, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. He died for us and He now guards us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. We need not fear him. We need not fear him. Songwriter said, see the mighty host advancing, Satan leading on. Mighty ones around us falling, courage almost gone. See the glorious banner waving, hear the trumpet blow. In our leader's name we triumph over every foe. Fierce and long the battle rages, but our help is near. Onward comes our great commander. Cheer, my comrades, cheer. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven by thy grace. We will. Satan is a ruined, judged, defeated, soon to be cast away forever fall. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in me, that's my king, Jesus, than he, the devil, that is in the world. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, and we'll look at the end. Revelation chapter 20. Let's see how it all ends for this guy. Verse number 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Wouldn't you like to see that? Wouldn't you like to be there? When they pitch him in there, jump down to verse number 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He is a defeated enemy. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to be there to see that when that happens. So I wonder this morning, do you think we're justified in having this in our statement of faith? We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Do you think we're justified? I do. I do. The Bible teaches me that Satan is the enemy of God and man. But it also teaches me that he's a defeated enemy and that he's soon to be removed from the scene altogether. I think it teaches me that we ought to recognize the power of Satan but not fear it. 
that we ought to respect and guard against and, and all that, but trust in Jesus Christ, who has forever and always defeated him. There is one other thing that I would have to say, one other thought about Satan that I think I would be sinful to neglect. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can be assured of spending eternity in heaven where Satan will never be. But there's a parallel truth, and that is this. Those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in hell where Satan will always be. At the end of the story, where did we see him? We saw him in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, verse number 10. For the one who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, the end is exactly the same thing. Anyone not found and written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. Revelation 21.8, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Same place he is. Same place he is. John Newton is best known, I suppose, for having written the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Song, Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. He also wrote these words. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? Horrors past imagination will surprise your trembling heart when you hear your condemnation. Hence, accursed wretch, depart. Thou, with Satan and his angels, have thy part. Satan, who now tries to please you, lest you timely warning take, when that word is passed, will seize you, plunge you in the burning lake. Think, poor sinner, thy eternal all's at stake. What will it be for thee? Will you forever be with Jesus and never need experience Satan again? Or will you forever be with Satan in the lake of fire? never to be free of him. I guess the greatest, the greatest lesson of all from thinking about Satan is that we need to trust Christ. To trust him today, come to him now before it's too late.